passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Now, as I mentioned, we're going to be in the book of Jonah for the next couple of weeks. And uh, I'm excited to jump into this book because it is one of my favorite books of the Bible. And, and if you've heard me uh, preach recently, I say that for basically every book of the Bible because uh, I like all of them. Uh, but the reason I like the book of Jonah is because it is a book that gives us a beautiful picture of the grace that God has for people who are completely undeserving of that grace. We've probably all heard the story of Jonah in our lives. Even if we haven't been in the church before, we probably are familiar with the story of of Jonah being uh, rescued from the sea by being swallowed by a whale, living in the whale for uh, three days and three nights, and then being spit up on land to follow God's call. An incredible, miraculous story, but I want to say right now, at the beginning of this series, that this book is not primarily about the miracle of, of Jonah being swallowed by a fish. It's about something far more miraculous than that, and that is the miracle of God giving us salvation, of people who are completely undeserving of salvation. See, God gave life to us while we were dead. That's something far more miraculous than a fish swallowing a person. And that's what Jonah is about. Now, before we jump into Jonah chapter one, where we're going to be this morning, I figured it would be appropriate just to talk a little bit about where this book fits into the the biblical story as a whole. And we got to turn to a a verse in 2 Kings to find that. In 2 Kings, we have one verse that tells us a little bit about who Jonah is, when Jonah lived. And I just want to read that to you uh, this morning. This is 2 Kings 14.25 said, he restored the border of Israel from Lebo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke to by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hafer. See, this verse tells us a little bit about where and when Jonah lived. Jonah lived during the reign of one of the kings of Israel named Jeroboam II. And Jeroboam II was the king of Israel at the beginning of the 8th century B.C., now, Jeroboam II was the king of the northern part of Israel. So if you remember, after Solomon, the kingdom of Israel split into two. And the northern kingdom uh, was called Israel. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And the, the southern kingdom had a lot of issues and problems, but it was nothing compared to the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was basically as wicked as you could get. They were a very idolatrous, idolatrous people, even offering sacrifices of their children up to these gods that they worshipped. They oppressed the poor. They were extremely immoral and everything that they did. And it's in that context that Jonah lived. Now, about 50 years before Jonah was ministering on, uh, among the Israelites, there was this massive battle that took place. And this is really important for us to recognize. About 50 years before Jonah lived, there was this battle between the world's superpower called Assyria and this coalition of nations that gathered together, and they were going to defend their territory from the advances of this Assyrian army. And no one expected the coalition to to actually win, but somehow they did. And so Assyria retreated back to the east, and the people that were a part of this coalition, they, they broke up the coalition, and everyone lived relatively peacefully, while the Assyrians, they went back to their home country, and they began to rebuild. They began to regroup. 
And 50 years later, the threat of the Assyrian nation is large. Uh, it is coming. They, they live in the danger of knowing that the Assyrians are going to come someday. We just don't know exactly when it is. And again, this is the time where Jonah lived and when Jonah ministered. This morning, we're going to be in Jonah chapter 1. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage. Uh, Jonah is one of the minor prophets, which means that it is found near the end of the Old Testament. And if you just flip through it, you'll eventually find it. It's kind of near the beginning of those minor prophets. Uh, If you don't have your Bible with you, there's one in the pews, or you can just find the uh, scripture printed in your sermon notes. And what we're going to see as we work our way through this chapter, we're going to see that it really falls into three different acts. The first act talks about uh, one thing, the second another, and the third thing, uh, third act uh, another. So we're going to break our passage up into those different areas. So uh, please follow along with me as I read aloud Jonah, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go to them, go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, the book of Jonah starts the way you would expect this book to start. Uh, one phrase was really common in the books about prophets, and that was, and the word of the Lord came to blank, and there's where you put the prophet's name. So here we start the same way you would expect any book talking about a prophet to, and the word of the Lord came to Jonah. This is the way it worked. God would bring a word to a prophet, and the prophet, their job was to listen, obey, and to go do what God had told them to do. That's the way things worked. In fact, a few decades later, God did this with another prophet and sent them to Nineveh and asked them to call out judgment against Nineveh, just like he did with Jonah here. And you would expect, if this was the way it worked in most books about prophets, that Jonah chapter 1 verse 3 would say, and so Jonah went to Nineveh to proclaim the word of the Lord. As we read, that's not what happens. Jonah doesn't follow God's word, doesn't follow God's will for him at this moment. And we're going to see this crop up over and over as we continue looking at this passage. You see, God makes his mission for Jonah very clear. He is supposed to go to Nineveh and he is supposed to proclaim judgment. Tell them about their evil. That is God's plan for him. And you know the significance of Nineveh? Nineveh was actually the capital of this Assyrian empire. So Nineveh is the capital city of the worst enemies of the people of Israel at this time. For Jonah, it wouldn't have been too big of a deal for him to have to go and tell them about their evils because they were some of the most wicked people on the face of the planet. The Assyrians were known for slaughtering tens of thousands, enslaving people, ripping people out of their homes and burning them and transferring them all across the the world that was known at that time. They were the ones who invented the practice of crucifixion. Their reputation for brutality preceded them. And God tells Jonah to go to them, go to their capital city and tell them of their evil. Tell them of their wicked deeds. And this tells us a little bit about God, what kind of God he is. You see, in the Old Testament, gods were kind of limited to their own land. This is the way people thought in ancient times that a God only had power in the place where people worshipped him. 
So for God, the God of Israel, to say, you need to go hundreds of miles away to the people of Assyria and tell them that I am not happy with the way that they are acting on the way that they are treating other people would have been significant. Because it tells us that our God that we worship, it cannot be fit into a box. The God that we worship as Christians and the people that, uh, that worshiped him back then are not the only people that have to answer to him. Everyone on the face of the planet has to answer to God. The people of Nineveh, just like the people of Israel, are responsible to God for all that they do. Now, as we read Jonah, Jonah is called to uh, share the wickedness of the people of Nineveh, Nineveh to them, and he disobeys. He goes the opposite direction of where they are supposed to go. Now, Nineveh is located today in what is considered modern-day Iraq in the northern part of the country. So if that's over here uh, in modern-day Iraq, Jonah actually goes, instead of going east, he goes west. He goes to Tarshish. We don't know exactly where Tarshish is, but we do know that it is found uh, at the far western edge of the known world at that time. Most people think it is found in southern Spain. And so what Jonah is doing is when God says go east, he says, no, I'm going west. I'm getting as far as I possibly can away from the people of Nineveh because I don't want to tell them what you would have me tell them. And we have to ask ourselves, why? Why is it that Jonah refuses to follow God's commands? I think that the reason is because he, gets, he is, understands a little bit of what God is like. He understands a little bit of God's character. And he knows that if he were to go and he were to share with the people of Assyria that God is upset with the way that they are acting, that God is going to call down judgment upon them, there's a chance that they are going to repent. And Jonah knows that if they repent, there's a pretty good chance that God is going to respond to them mercifully, that God is going to show them grace, that God is going to forgive them because that's the way that God acts. And Jonah doesn't want that to happen. Jonah doesn't want the people of Assyria to be shown mercy. Because if he knows that if they aren't destroyed by God's hand at this moment, it's only a matter of time before they come and destroy Israel. So he refuses to go share God's condemnation of the people of Assyria. Because he knows that there's a chance that God will come and show his mercy to them. And it's easy for us to get disturbed by Jonah's position today. It's easy for us to look at Jonah and say, well, how could you hate a people so much that you would refuse to share God's good news with them? But if we're honest with ourselves, I think that we are guilty of things that are just as similar as that. How many of us wish that, that some of us would be shown mercy, like us, our, our kids, those who are close to us, while at the same time, we wish for God's justice for those who have wronged us, for sex traffickers, for murderers. We have this same approach that Jonah does here. We want some people to be shown God's mercy, while at the same time we want some people to be shown God's justice. We don't want everyone to receive mercy. We don't want everyone to receive justice. Another way to look at this is to think of the fact that we don't think that we really need justice or mercy or grace, because we're doing pretty good on our own. We don't think that there's really any need for us to be shown grace, because let's be honest, I'm, I'm pretty good at living my life, at, at honoring God with my life, and so I don't really need to be shown grace or mercy, and I don't really want other people to be shown that either, because I don't want them to have something that I don't. You see, for Jonah, 
while he recognizes the evil of the people of Assyria, he, he fails to recognize the evil of his own nation. Remember the context that he is preaching in. The people of Israel are extremely immoral. They were brutal as well, sacrificing their children as on, the, on the altars of different gods. They, just as much as the people of Assyria, deserve condemnation, and yet they had begun to feel entitled to God's grace. They begun to feel like they deserved God's grace. And how often does that happen to us, too? We, we feel like we, uh, we oh, own God's grace, that he owes it to us. How often do we take it for granted and assume that it's something that, you know, God's always going to give us, that I am doing a pretty good job of following him, and so he kind of owes me his grace. David Platt, a pastor, a former pastor in the south of of the United States, puts it this way. He says, American religion believes that heaven and salvation is a default state of humanity. In other words, heaven is something to be lost rather than to be gained. Every single person on the face of the planet, according to American religion, is going to heaven unless they screw up royally. But it doesn't take into account the wickedness of humanity. The fact that everyone stands condemned before God, and yet God offers mercy, God offers grace to all of humanity. See, we're unable to recognize our need for salvation, just like Jonah was, just like the people of Israel were. They didn't think that they needed salvation, but they needed it just as much as the people of Assyria. And so they had this calloused view towards people of other uh, ethnicities, people who were different than them because God wanted to show them mercy and grace. And so what we see is that Jonah runs. Jonah runs the opposite direction. He has no intention of obeying God, and so he just takes off. The author gives us a little bit of insight into why he does that. If you look at the end of verse 3, it says, away from the presence of the Lord. The reason why Jonah was running while he was disobeying God is because he didn't want to be in God's presence. He didn't want God to be there while he had no intention of obeying God. And again, I think that this is another perfect mirror for us in our lives. When we disobey God, we don't really want to be around him. See this all the time when people, they, they don't want to follow God anymore. So they cut all their ties with Christians, with the church and say, you know what? I don't want to follow God. And so I'm just going to get rid of everything that has to do with God in my life. I'm just going to leave all of that as, po- as much as possible out of my life. And then I can just do what I want. God won't be bothering me. I won't be bothering him. Everything's going to work out okay. That's one way that people kind of run from God today. But another way is we kind of compartmentalize our lives today as Americans. We see everything as a different silo. So we say, you know, God, I'll give you my spiritual time, but I'm not going to give you my Monday through Friday. I'll give you my Sunday mornings, but I'm not going to give you my Saturday nights. I'll, I'll be honoring to you out in public, but on late nights in front of the computer screen when I'm all alone, you're nowhere to be found. We compartmentalize our life saying, you know what, God, you can have this area, but you can't have this area. I'm going to run from you. I'm going to flee from your presence. I'm going to hide it from you because you can't do anything about it because I have no intention of following you. What these verses are telling us is that when we don't follow God, when we don't want to follow God, we try to run from his presence. We try to flee from him, try to get as far away from him as possible. That's what Jonah does when he flees to Tarshish. He's trying to get away from the presence of God because he has no intention of obeying God. Let's see how that works out for him in the next few verses. Picking up in verse four. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And what do you, where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of, the, of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them that he was doing so. See, Jonah hops on board a ship to go to Tarshish. The ship was probably uh, captained by a bunch of pagans, people who didn't worship the God of Israel. In fact, they worshiped different gods. In fact, we think that they're probably uh, Philistines at this time. We don't know how long Jonah is on this ship. We don't know if it's a day, a week, or a month. But it's fascinating what the author of this book does. The end of verse 3, it says that Jonah is trying to flee from the presence of the Lord. And what is the first thing he says in verse 4? He says, and then God hurled upon the sea a mighty wind. Jonah is trying to run away from God, and yet God is right there with him in the middle of the sea, trying to get his intention, trying to make him follow him and, and snap out of this disobedience that he was doing. For us, if we're disobeying God, if we're not following him, if we're trying to run away from him, tells us, just like Jonah, that there's nowhere that we can hide. There's no place that we can run to get out of his presence. And for a lot of us, that might sound like it's not very good news at all. It might sound like that is actually bad news. That I can't hide anything of my life from God. In fact, it doesn't look like it's good news in Jonah's life because God sends a mighty wind upon the water and causes this storm. And in response to this storm, we see two different uh, ways you can respond and what you would expect. So you'd expect that Jonah, the prophet of God, a Hebrew, an Israelite, this person who knows God and worships him, you would expect him to respond in the right way. You'd expect for him to respond in the way that you should respond. And then the the other people, the sailors, the the pagans, you would expect them, because they don't know God, to respond in, in the wrong way. But if you look at verses 4 through 6, you see that Jonah doesn't respond in the right way, and these pagans somehow do. See, the pagans, they they respond with fear. They know that they need to be saved, and so they start crying out to their gods and saying, would you come and save us from this storm? Now, we don't say that their response was more favorable because they were crying out to different gods. There's nothing more beneficial about crying out to an idol than there is to not crying out to anything. But It's better than Jonah's response. Because what we see with Jonah is that Jonah looks at the storm, he goes down and decides that he's going to take a nap. He's going to just avoid the fact that God is using the storm to get a hold of him. And it isn't until a pagan captain comes down below deck and wakes him up and says, what is wrong with you? 
We're perishing. Everyone's throwing over the cargo, trying to save this ship. Everyone's on their knees, begging their God to save them. And you're down here asleep. Wake up. Pray to your God. Maybe he'll hear you. Maybe he'll come and save us. And yet the text is strangely silent in Jonah's reply. When this man tells Jonah to to pray that God would come and save them, he does nothing. He doesn't offer up prayers to God. He doesn't ask God to come and help them. He just stands there. See, Jonah is continuing his disobedience from God. This is why Jonah's response is less favorable than that of the sailors. They at least recognize that they were desperate, that they were in need of salvation. But Jonah defiantly refused to come before God, defiantly refused to obey God, to bow before him, to show humility and ask for forgiveness and ask that God would come and save them because he is too stubborn to do so. And because Jonah refuses to do anything, the storm continues to rage, continues to get worse. And so the sailors gather together and they say, we're going to try one more thing. This is our last chance to figure out what's going on here. And so they do what is considered basically the ancient version of drawing straws. They have everyone grab a marker and they you know, put their initials on it and they throw it in a bag. And the first one who draws, whose uh, name is drawn out of the bag is going to be the first one who has to share information about why this could be happening to them. This is called casting lots. This is one of the ways that you cast lots. And of course, Jonah's name comes out first. Now, Proverbs tells us that God is the one who's in charge of casting lots. And so this isn't a coincidence. What we see is that God is relentlessly pursuing Jonah. God called Jonah to follow him to Nineveh, and Jonah runs the other way. God sent a storm onto the water to get Jonah's attention, and Jonah goes down and goes to sleep. God sends a pagan captain to go and call Jonah to pray to him, and Jonah refuses to do so. And so God says, all right, what I'm going to do, I'm going to get your attention this time. We're going to have everyone's name put in here. We're going to draw your name out, and you can't escape anymore. You are going to finally come face to face with me in the midst of this storm, in the midst of your disobedience. And so the sailors ask Jonah some questions, and Jonah answers them, tells them that he is a a Hebrew, he's a, a person who's from Israel and worships the God of the heavens, the one who created the earth, the dry lands and the water. And the, the irony in his response is just so incredible because he says that he fears God. He says that he worships God. And if you look at his actions, it's the exact opposite. He refuses to bow before God. He refuses to worship him, to pray to him. He's the reason that all of this stuff is happening, and God is trying to get his attention. And the response of the sailors shows Jonah's true heart. See, they were the ones who were in fear for their lives while Jonah was asleep. And when Jonah says, I'm the reason that all of this is happening, because I worship the God who controls everything in the universe, they respond with even greater fear. In Hebrew, the word for fear can also be used for worship. Jonah says he worships God, says he fears God, but he doesn't really. And these pagans, these guys who don't know God, fall down in in fear because of what God is doing, because of who God is. And too often, same thing is said about the church today. 
too often the church and those in the church do a worse job of following God, of, of fearing him than those who are outside of the church. And God is not amused by that. Jonah has no excuse because he has God's revelation. He knows who God is, and yet he continues to disobey him, continues to refuse to follow him. And you see what the narrator is trying to say in this passage. If the first few verses were telling us that when we disobey God, we, we try to run away from him, these few verses are telling us that you can't run away from God. You can't get away from him. There's nowhere that you can run far enough to get to where God won't be. There's no place that you can hide to be out of his presence. You can't run hard enough to get away from him. God is present. God is there in the midst of the storm that Jonah is in, relentlessly pursuing him, asking Jonah to come, to obey, to submit to his calling. Let's see how Jonah responds in the past few verses. It says, Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay, uh, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. In the first few verses, Jonah disobeys God and runs away from him. And we see that God is present in the midst of all of this. And upon hearing Jonah's situation, where Jonah is found, the people uh, that are with him try their hardest to save Jonah. They want to know how they can respond. And they want to respond in obedience. They ask Jonah, well, what can we do? How can we be obedient to make sure that this stops? It's so ironic because Jonah is refusing to be obedient and these guys uh, don't know God and they're saying, I want to obey. I want to figure out how we can fix this, how we can be saved. And Jonah just looks at him and says, there's nothing you can do. There is nothing that can atone for my disobedience. The only way that you're gonna be able to survive the storm is you just throw me overboard. Jonah has this defiant refusal to ask for forgiveness, to come before God and bow before him and say, God, would you please forgive me? Would you please let me obey you? Give me another chance. And so he says, the only thing that's going to happen is you're going to throw me overboard, and that's how you're going to get out of this storm. He would rather go to his death in the midst of the water than he would ask for forgiveness. Now, you see this a lot today as well. People are on their deathbed. The gospel is shared with them. And tell them how that they can have a relationship with God and they hear that good news and they refuse to believe. I don't know if it's a sense of pride or a sense of some sort of false ju- justice where they want to pay for all of the things that they have done wrong, even if that means going to hell. But you see people refusing to submit, refusing to ask for forgiveness, just like Jonah right here. 
in the midst of running from God, there's a refusal to turn around. See, I think a lot of times when we are running from God in our own lives, we start running away from him because we don't want anything to do with him. We want to disobey him. But there comes a point when we are running away from him that that something changes and we realize that we should turn around, that we should go back to him. But this is the only thing that we got. This is uh, the only way that we can avoid shame is just to keep going down the same path that we've been going down. And we get to a point where we should turn around, but we can't because we refuse to ask for forgiveness. And we think that, no, there's no way that God is going to forgive me. I just got to keep going down this path because this is the bed I've made. This is the route that I am going down. And this is my watery grave, just like Jonah. As we're going to see that that's not true in this passage, it's not true in our lives. And so if you're running from God right now, I ask you to turn around, to stop. Don't be like Jonah. Ask God for forgiveness because he will. You can't fathom the forgiveness that God has for everyone. Even us, even Jonah, even the sailors. And yet he offers grace and mercy to us. You see, after Jonah tells the crew that they must kill him, if they want to escape this storm, they're reluctant to do it, obviously. They try their hardest to get back to the land, but they can't do it. And so before they throw Jonah overboard, they look up to the heavens and say, God, forgive us for what we are about to do. Don't count this man's life against us. They come before God asking for forgiveness when Jonah refuses to ask for forgiveness. While Jonah is running away from God, they come and say, God, please forgive us for what we're about to do. And so they throw Jonah into the water and instantly the storms cease. I'm sure that the words that they spoke were the exact same words the disciples said centuries later when Jesus calmed the storms said, who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? Who then is this that even the wind and the seas obey him? And they fall on their knees with a great fear because of who God is and what God has done, and they worship God. If you've heard me speak at all over the last couple of months, you've probably heard me say that the grace that God has for us leads to a response in worship. That's just the way things work. We respond in worship to all that God has done for us. That's why we gather on Sunday mornings. It's an act of worship, a response to what God has done for us in our lives. And that's what these uh, pagans are doing right here. We don't know if they converted or not. They could have just offered up a sacrifice to God as a way of saying thank you for saving us and gone back to their pagan lifestyles. But I think that their repentance was genuine. We look at the last two chapters of Jonah, verse chapters 3 and 4, we see that the people of Nineveh respond with genuine repentance. And there's a little bit of a parallel here between the first two chapters of Jonah and the last two chapters of Jonah. So I think that they respond uh, in genuine repentance, asking God for forgiveness, the grace that God gives them and leads them to worship. See, we can't fit God into a box. We can't try to push God into a place where he is limited by geographical boundaries. And when we're running from God, that might not sound like good news. But these verses tell us otherwise. 
The fact that God is present everywhere is truly good news because where God is present, God can save. If you struggle with pornography and you're in front of a computer screen all the time looking at it, you think that you're hidden from God, you're not. God is present there with you and he's able to save you from that. If you struggle with idolatry, placing other things more important than God in your life, and you think that he is not there, well, he is. And he can break you free from the chains of idolatry that are holding you down, from, from work, from alcohol, from pleasure, from serving your children too much. God can set you free from idolatry because where he is, he is able to save, and God's presence is truly good news for us. This is what the sailors realized here as they were saved from the storm. God was able to save them because he was present, he was present with them. You know, humanity is the only part of God's creation that disobeys him. You look at the winds, and the winds blow exactly where God tells them to go. You look at the rain, the rain falls exactly where God wants it to fall. The planet Earth always circles the sun the exact way God that planned for it. And then we get to us, the only part of creation that has the nerve to look at God and say, no, I am not going to obey you. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to run away from you. I don't care what you want for me. I am going to do what I want. We have the nerve to look at God and say, no. And yet in spite of this rebellion, the story of Jonah tells us that God offers grace to us. See, we are all guilty of rebellion. We are all like the sailors. We are all like Jonah. And that's why this passage tells us that God freely gives grace to us in spite of our stubborn rebellion. God freely gives grace to us, people who are unworthy of it in spite of our stubborn rebellion. That's why this series is called The Depths of Grace. It's because as you look at the story of Jonah, as you look at each of these different chapters, you see that God's grace is deep enough to save you, that he will never run out of grace for you, no matter how far you have run away from him, no matter how far you try to get away from him. His grace is present for you. It's this grace that brought the, present, the pagan sailors uh, to worship their creator, and it's this grace that also saved Jonah. If you look at the last verse of Jonah chapter 1, says this, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, if there's anyone in Jonah 1 that deserves salvation the least, it's Jonah. Someone who is supposed to know better, who's supposed to follow God and does everything in his power to reject him to disobey him, and God shows him grace anyway. It's not because of who Jonah is. It's because of who God is. It's not because of anything that Jonah has done. It's actually in spite of what Jonah has done in his life. And God offers grace to him in spite of his stubborn rebellion, in spite of the fact that Jonah is disobeying him and running as far away from him as he possibly can. God offers grace to him. If you look in the Gospels, Jesus, in in one situation, he's talking with some religious elite, and they ask him for a sign. They want to basically see that he can prove that he is sent from God. And he looks at him, he says, you're not going to receive any sign but the sign of Jonah. He says, I'm not going to do anything for you. The only sign you're going to get is the sign of Jonah. And 
people have wrestled through what exactly that means. Some people say, well, Jonah came to preach, uh, to tell repentance to the people of Nineveh, and, and Jesus did the same thing. So that's what the sign of Jonah is. Other people say, well, Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, and Jesus was in the ground for three days. So that's what the sign of Jonah is. And I think both of those are right, but I think that there's something, a uh, deeper level of what the sign of Jonah is. You see, Jonah was offered grace and was offered salvation in spite of everything that he had done, in spite of his wickedness. And when Jesus says he is going to give us the sign of Jonah, he's saying, you know what, in spite of your wickedness, God is going to offer salvation to you too, through me. That's the sign of Jonah that I bring to you, that you are going to receive forgiveness, that you are going to receive salvation because God is going to give it to you through me dying on your behalf. And this sign of Jonah, this good news leads to worship. It leads to repentance. It leads us to fall on our knees just like the pagan sailors. See, God offers grace to us, period. God will forgive us, period. He will save us, period. And so we as Christians are called to cling to the God who can save us. And my prayer is that we would echo the same words that we're going to look at next week as we jump into Jonah chapter 2. In Jonah 2.9, where Jonah just says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Because God alone can offer salvation and God does so freely in spite of our wickedness, in spite of the ways that we run away from him and disobey him. Friends, that is truly good news. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for the ways that you love us and the ways that you care for us. Even when we are deserving of condemnation, even when we are like Jonah, we disobey you, we run far away from you, your presence is still there with us, pursuing us, seeking us, calling us back. And God, we pray that you would be at work in our lives. Think of those among us this morning who are far from you, who want to turn back, but they're too ashamed to do so. They're too proud to do so. And Father, I pray that you would help them to turn back, to know that you offer grace, you offer mercy, that you offer forgiveness, because that is who you are. And that is truly good news. In Jesus' name, amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.